Matthew chapter 5. I just want you to hear God's Word read. Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 4, and then we will pray. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I just feel like as I approach this text, what we're going to look at today is so foreign to us. It's so um, strange to our nature as sinners. So God, I ask this morning that we would hear rightly what you have to say. Lord, where I'm, where I'm accurate with what you've said, may we hear, hear it and receive it, Lord Jesus, from you. But Lord, where I err, I pray that we would all forget what is said and that, Lord, your mercy would cover. God, help us now to attend to your word. Speak to us, form us, we pray. By your spirit, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thomas Watson, uh, a famous Puritan, described, he described the Sermon on the Mount, or the Beatitudes particularly, as, uh, if you're familiar with Jacob's Ladder in the Old Testament, uh, Jacob's Ladder was a vision that Jacob had of, of a stairway to heaven. And he says that the Beatitudes are that stairway. The only difference is, is that the first rung doesn't go up. The first rung goes down. And then the second rung goes further down and further down and further down and further down. Because the way of the kingdom, down is up and up is down. And it's, complete, it's a paradox. We saw that last week, that the, the Beatitudes are a paradox. Um, and, and the first step toward heaven was what we saw last week, which is spiritual bankruptcy. Uh, all children, all, all people in the kingdom will come as children. There will not be anyone in the kingdom of God that is a spiritual elite. There will only be children. Uh, but this second rung is really important, and I just want to remind you what Chesterton calls, or he describes, a paradox. A paradox is a truth standing on her head to get our attention. Okay, so Jesus, what he's doing here, notice what he did here in verse 4, which is all we're going to cover today. He says, blessed are those, or happy are those, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a, that's a paradox, because at some level, We don't think naturally happy are the ones who are mourning. But what Jesus is saying here is happy, we're blessed, blessed under the approval of God are those who mourn because they will be comforted. So I want us to see, if you're taking notes there in front of you, I want us to see the comfort of God for those who mourn. So last week we saw about the the spiritual bankruptcy, uh, 
that, that it's required to be in the kingdom. This week we're going to look at what about for those who mourn? And it's the same person. He's, Jesus is describing the same person, just a different level. A Christian is one who is more grieved by his own, his or her own sin more than the sins of other people. A Christian is one who is more grieved by his own sin than the sins of others. And I want us to see first what's, what mourning is not. Okay, so mourning, the kind of mourning or grieving that Jesus is describing here is not natural, nor is it widespread. Okay, mourning, by mourning, Jesus isn't talking about a personality type. He's not describing something from the Enneagram. He's not describing a person who's naturally dispositioned to the kingdom. He's saying that for the person who's going to enter the kingdom, he will first be spiritually bankrupt, and then in his spiritual bankruptcy will mourn his own sin. Now, mourning is not a disposition. It's not a personality type. I want you to notice again what in another place, very similar in Luke's gospel, um, the, the parallel passage, he says this in Luke, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. He actually goes further to say, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus doesn't have in mind here a fleshly mourning. And I think, I think we would do well as Christians to realize that there is more than a little bit of fleshly mourning that happens around us. Like, actually, we see it even in Scripture. Let me give you two places just in the Old Testament, very, very briefly, for fleshly mourning. If you remember in 2 Samuel 13, Amon mourned because Tamar couldn't satisfy him sexually. So there's mourning. There's all types of mourning. We have to distinguish what type of mourning is Jesus talking about. Notice what 2 Samuel 13 says. And Amon, Amnon, Amnon, not Amnon, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything, anything to her. Or take Ahab. Ahab was a man who couldn't have another person's property. And he, he was so sickened by it. He was so grieved by it. 1 Kings 21 says this, And Ahab went into his house vexed or grieved and sullen because of, the, because of what Naboth the Je- Jezre- Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. So mourning, when Jesus talks about mourning, there's a kind of mourning we need to understand that he doesn't mean. I loved what Leon Morris, I think, very helpfully says this, describing the fleshly mourning. He says, in their seeking after self-gratification and pleasure, they do not grieve over sin or evil. Because they do not grieve over what is wrong in themselves. They do not repent. Because they do not grieve over the wrong they share with others in the communities in which they live. They take few steps to set things right. And all he's saying there, very simply, is in their self-gratification, that's what causes them to mourn. Let me give you a really practical example. And I've seen this. If you've spent any time on the mission field, you've probably seen this as well. Um, so take, go, go into the slums of India for a second. I don't know if you've ever spent any time maybe in the slums of India. If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
If you, maybe if you haven't, uh, I, I would encourage you to go read up on it, see how awful the conditions are. But I'm really interested, when, when I walk into a place like that, or you walk into the streets of India, it's interesting that you've, you meet a lot of people called, flo- I'm going to get the word wrong, flo- flo- um, the people who do aid but aren't Christians, basically. Flo- flo- I, can't, I, always, I can never get the, flo- yeah, there it is, whoever said it, thank you. An unbeliever mourns, if you've ever watched it happen, they mourn over the entirely wrong things. You know, they walk into the streets of India, and all they can think is how unfair that people would live without homes, or how unfair that they have to work so hard for food every day. Or, I mean, and again, we could go on and on and on and show example after example, but they mourn the wrong things. Is it grieving to walk through the slums of India? Very much so. Very much so. But the Christian has the right reason why they mourn. Christians walk the same streets of India, but are concerned for entirely different reasons. They grieve over the deep injustices of the society because people made in the image of God are being suppressed. They grieve over the lack of shelter because they see the real problems behind the problems. What Jesus is talking about here is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforting. But it needs to be qualified with the right kind of mourning. We're not just talking about a fleshly, worldly type of mourning here. So what is he talking about? I would say very simply, Jesus is describing mourning over our own sin. Mourning over our own sin. But you know, even this gets confused. Even this becomes very worldly, unfortunately. You know, we, we, had, a, we had a water trough. We had many water troughs growing up. But we had water troughs. If you've, ever, if you've ever seen a water trough, particularly like one of the big concrete ones with the center, the center is where it, it, all the water goes out. And it's a gravity-fed one, so a spring comes into it. But if you've ever had a water trough, you know that in the water trough, what actually happens is it gets all sorts of junk in the bottom of it. So what we would do, we would go around every, I don't know, every year or two or however long we'd do it. I don't know how often. And we would stir up the junk, and then you'd pull the plug, and it would all drain out, and the, the trough would be clean again. But I've always noticed something. What you would do at, at one point is if you didn't pull the plug and you just stirred it up, I would actually describe that as that's actually what it looks like for false repentance. And I would actually, and, and, and I'm going to say something that I think, I don't think we consider as often as we should as Christians. Do you know the world feels bad for their sin? Like everybody out here, when they commit adultery, when they even sin against their spouses, they feel bad for their sin. Did you know that? I don't know if you've ever talked to an unbeliever long enough to know that, but the problem is, just like that water trough, if you don't pull the plug to let all the junkies out, it just spins, and it stirs, and it actually looks very similar to what Christians can look like at certain points. So it's mourning over our sin, but we need to understand the type of mourning we're talking about. It's not simply just outward mourning, okay? We're not talking about just outward mourning, And I would call this a repentance unto death. Okay, the Bible talks about it in other places. We're going to see it. This is not a repentance unto death. This is not an outward mourning, necessarily. Unbelievers feel bad about their sin. Unbelievers grieve their sin. 
unbelievers even grieve the consequences of their sin. Did you know, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, he repents seven times. Did you know that? Seven times he repents. When I was reading through it just recently, I was blown away the amount of times he repents and the amount of times he's continually hardened. He's blown away. Exodus 10, notice just what he says. He says, I have sinned. Notice even what he says. At this point, in modern evangelicalism, we get him in the baptismal. We get him in the baptismal. At this this confession, we'd be like, Pharaoh, get you in the tub, man. Notice what he says. I've sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. He even acknowledges, I've sinned against you. And he goes on, now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. And you know what's amazing? God does it. He removes the death from Pharaoh. Or not the death of the child, but he removes the death of the plague that was currently on him. And you know what happened immediately? He went right back to his old pattern. Right there in the trough, just spinning around. All its junk, not going anywhere. And it's a repentance unto death. To mourn, let me say this, this, to mourn the consequences of our sin sounds something like this. Sorry, God, that I keep causing such chaos in my home. I feel so overwhelmed by the way my sin makes me feel. you You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've seen this. You've probably even at some points seen this in your own soul. And and that's why I want to be very careful here. I want to distinguish what the unbeliever and the believer look like in mourning. Of course it makes them feel bad. Mourning for sin must go beyond this. Spurgeon, I think, very helpfully says. He says, if I hate sin because of the punishment, I've not repented of sin. I merely regret that God is just. Hear that one more time. If I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of sin. I merely regret that God is just. And may I just say, this this is the posture of an unbeliever. This is the posture of one who says, I hate the consequences of my sin. So our mourning must go beyond that. But I want to make a comment before we move on. If you're an unbeliever sitting here, and you, you you know who you are. If you're an unbeliever, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't treasured Christ unto salvation, if you haven't placed your life upon him, you likely take comfort in the fact that you feel bad for your sin. I was just sitting down with somebody this week, and we were literally just sitting there. And in talking to them, one of the, the guy that I was sitting with, he mentioned, you should come to church sometime soon. And the guy's response still floors me. He's like, I'm planning on it. At some point, he's not ever planning on it. And the reason is, is that kind of feeling bad for our sin does nothing but soothes our, soothes our conscience. Oh, friends, we, we need to go beyond this. If you're not a believer here today, your sin, must you must mourn far more than this. You must see the actual bankruptcy that it is before God. I want us to see, though, that, that mourning takes us somewhere. It doesn't just spin around in the trough of our lives. Here's the second piece. So it's outward mourning. It's also, here's the other way we know about it. It's fruitless mourning. So Jesus is not talking about fruitless. It's not outward mourning necessarily. Like, sure, there will certainly be tears. It's, but, but it's not also fruitless mourning. 
which is also repentance unto, unto death. You know, 2 Corinthians, we heard it read this morning, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul wrote to the Corinthians a second time, and he says that he's upset with them about the way he made them grieve. He called them out, he told them in 1 Corinthians 5, if you remember, he told them that they were wrong because they were allowing a person who was living in adultery to be in a part of their gathering and not, and not removing them from the, from the fold. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, he talks about a severe letter that he sent. He says, for even if I've made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. So there's that same idea. He, he made them, Paul said some harsh words to them and said to them, you need to get this guy out. And if you don't, you're going to be condemned. And so it grieved them. And Paul says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I grieved you, but not really. Here's why. Notice what he says. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. There it is. There's, there's the idea that, that Jesus, I think, is even getting at as well. So their grieving needs to do something in us. They were grieved into repenting. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And he goes on to say in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a distinction in our brain. It is possible, it is possible to mourn over your sin and it be a false repentance. It is possible to weep over our sin, but it not move us to obedience. It is possible to mourn over our sin and it not produce an outward righteousness. Jonathan Edwards, I think, very helpfully again says, When a man truly sees the hatefulness of his sins and mourns for them, he will come readily and willingly without being forced to it and cast himself down at the feet of God and lie in the dust. Let me give you another example. I want you to take two men, and I've used this before. I'll use it again at some point. I want you to picture with me two men who have struggled with drunkenness. Okay? Two men. Maybe call one man one and man two. The first man who gets drunk comes and confesses his sin to his brother. And he's grieving over the fact that he's a sinner before a holy God. Now take the second man. The second man tries to cover it up and when confronted becomes confrontational. I didn't didn't do that. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as you think. Let me ask you, which of the two men have repented? The first one, absolutely. Which of the two men? The first one. We all know it. We all see it. We all understand. We cannot force a person to mourn for their sin. This is why you will never, you will never, I want to say this again, you will never hear me try to manipulate somebody to come become a Christian. You know why? We don't scare people into heaven. I don't scare people into heaven. I don't scare people into heaven, and I can't grieve them for their iniquity. No more than I can scoop the water from that swirling trough to get it out. If I would have taken a little cup and sitting there trying to get all the junk out of the water, we can't do that. Thomas Watson, very helpfully again says it must come as out water out of a spring, not fire out of a flint. 
Tears for sin must be like the myrrh which drops from the tree freely without cutting or forcing. That's how, that's how mourning comes from us. If you hear what I'm saying today and you're like, man, Daniel's just saying I need to go home and I need to mourn really hard for my sin. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're a Christian, you will mourn your sin. James says in another place, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's why, though. We need to keep this in our brain. So it's not mourning unto false repentance. I want us to see that it leads to obedience. It's repentance unto life. So the kind of mourning, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it's not this kind of swirling in the pot of our life. It does something. It goes somewhere. You know, my favorite part of that trough when we'd pull the plug, was when we pulled the plug. Not when we'd stir it up. So you go and you'd like stir up all the junk out of it. But then at the very end, you would be like, pull it out and it would gush down the mountain. That's what happens in the life of the Christian. His grieving, his mourning does something in him. And it, we're going to get there, and I want you to see what it does. But it's repentance unto life, and it leads to obedience. We see this. We see this everywhere in Scripture. This is not just Jesus talking about it in one instance. Psalm 51, 3 through 4. David, after killing Bathsheba, after, ki- or after, no, sorry, after, Wires crossed. After committing adultery with Bathsheba, after killing Uriah, after covering it up to be called out even, notice how he talks about his sin. Psalm 51, 3 through 4. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And then notice what he says in verse 4. Against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, wait a second. Hold on. Back the truck up. He, he committed adultery. He killed a man. But he says, my sin is so grievous that it's only grievous before you, Lord. That, my friends, is true repentance. He's starting to see true repentance happen in a man. I have a, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David does not primarily look at the consequences of his sin, though there are many. David primarily sees his sin sin as offensive before a holy God. Jonathan Edwards, again, I think very helpfully says, he that truly hates sin will hate it most in himself. Let me say that one more time. He that truly hates sin will hate it most in himself. You know, Christian, brother, sister, we don't sin abstractly. I don't know if you've ever considered this. We don't sin abstractly, and therefore our mourning for sin should not be abstract either. Our mourning for sin, we don't sin in the abstract. I don't accidentally sin in certain ways. Deceitful people desire to mourn for sin in general. There are specific ways that our sin has made a stench before God. Therefore, our mourning should be over specific sins which has grieved our Heavenly Father. As Watson, again, I think helpfully says, believing tears are precious. 
When the clouds of sorrow have overcast the soul, some sunshine of faith must break through. And we're going to see that we don't mourn like the rest of the world mourns because we know there's something greater. We know that our mourning is doing something in us. And that's actually what Jesus promises. So it's mourning our own sin, but I need us to see also that it's mourning also over the world's sin. So it's mourning over our own sin, but it's also mourning over the world's sin. Now, this is very, I want to be very clear as well. Notice that we always have to start here before we start out there. May I just say for us as a church as well, before I go on any further, we need to mourn here, and then we need to mourn as a family, and then we need to mourn as a church, particularly our sin. And only then, after we've done all those others, then we can mourn the sins of the world. Okay? So, Jesus does this, actually, multiple times. Uh, You know, Jesus, there was actually a certain point when they asked Jesus, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? You know, some people thought he was Jeremiah, which is called the weeping prophet, come back from the dead. You know, when we think of Jesus, all we ever think of, and I think, I, I think we sometimes think that he was always laughing, maybe. Maybe he was. Maybe he laughed more than we think he was. But one thing we do know is that he was called the man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief his whole life, not, not, just, not just in one instance. He was the man of sorrows. One instance. Let me give you just one instance. John 11. The first, the first of these instances is at Lazarus' tomb. Now, Mary, notice, notice what happened at Lazarus' tomb. Now, Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, which is the verse that everyone always memorizes of the whole Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The picture of Jesus being deeply moved and bothered by the death of his friend is not just a mirage. Jesus was definitely bothered by the death of Lazarus. But why? Why was he so upset by Lazarus? Why was he so upset by him? He was so upset, not because, because here we know, just a few verses later, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he's sitting there outside the tomb of a man he's about to call to come out of there. He's standing there weeping. Could it be that Jesus stands there and weeps because he sees the fundamental problem behind the problem? He knows. You know, we prayed for this morning the Uyghur people. You know, we will probably never meet many Uyghur people in our life. You know that? But when Jesus sees Lazarus, may I just say, I would argue that he sees all of the effects of sin that will happen upon people. So it's the effects of sin of the world. I want us to see two things in this. We need to grieve two particular pieces, and it's the effects of sin in the world, and it's the effects of sin on people. You know, Jesus saw the effects of sin on his friends, people he really did love and care for, and this bothered him. So much so that verse 36 says, even his enemies said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. And just a few verses later, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And he says, take away the stone. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Notice, Jesus didn't just weep in a vacuum. His weeping, now it moved him, unlike me and you. We don't go to tombs and say, hey, come out of there. We can't do that. But I will say, I actually don't think we do the first part, though, well. Christians, part of what it means to love one another in a community is to mourn for one another. When we see brothers and sisters struggling in our community and in the larger community surrounding us, true love mourns. True love weeps. May I actually say that I think we in the West and we as Christians here in America at this time need to learn this more than anything. Because we know how to rejoice. We can rejoice all day long. We don't mind that. But man, we really struggle to mourn, don't we? We really struggle to weep, don't we, with others. Romans 12, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. And then he goes down and defines what that means more. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who meet. Weep. May I just say, I think some of the most godly things you and I can do when we hear brothers and sisters struggling, when we see sin and, and corruption hit people, is just cry. Because some of the godliest things you can do is just weep, to mourn with them, to bring them the comfort of Christ. So that's the effects of sin in the world. I want you to see the effects of sin on people. We see Jesus particularly mourn in another instance, and I want you to notice it as well. It actually comes at a very strange time. He's entering Jerusalem. People are getting palm branches saying, the king has come, the king has come. All excited. And Jesus starts weeping. You know, it just reminds us, even as we watch the Super Bowl later, it's okay that when everyone else is rejoicing around us that we just weep. That's okay. Because we see the tragedy behind the rejoicing. But Jesus, he, he sees the excitement, but he knows the reality. He sees the excitement coming to him. And notice what it says in Luke 19.41. When he drew near to the city, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Let me just ask you. And he wept over it mainly because he knew they were going to, they're cheering for him today, but tomorrow they're going to be crucifying him. Let me ask you, you know, when we look at people, there's a temptation to assume they deserve what's coming to them. I would say especially in America, we, we look at people who have maybe gotten themselves in bad situations, and we immediately want to say, Jesus is standing here weeping over people who are about to kill him. Just days later, we'll kill him. He could easily, if there's ever been someone on earth that could say, they deserve what they have coming to them, it's Jesus right here. But the city of Jerusalem in a few days would kill him, and he's standing there weeping over them. This is what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is upset because he knows their judgment's coming. And it comes in AD 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed. And if anybody ever could have looked at them and said, you all had it coming, it was Jesus. That's not what he did, though. Church, we need to grieve the gross immorality we see around us. 
And I actually say, I don't think we thought through it fully. Let me give you just an example. If a transgender person decides to repent and come to Christ, have we counted the cost of what it is for them to repent? I don't think we have. Like, after they've had a sex change, are we willing to come around them? Not, not, I'm not talking about pandering to them in their sin. I'm saying, are we willing to receive them? Will we weep over them? Will we be grieved over the gross immorality like Jesus was? Not because we hate seeing it. Not because it's not like it used to be. But because we genuinely see that people are made in the image of God and Jesus himself cares for them. Let me give you another example. You know, church splits have become very, very common. Very, very common. And as Christians, we need to grieve them. When we hear of them, I don't care what it's over. We need to grieve them. We could give example after example after example and not just criticize. We need to grieve. So how does this look? There's hope here. I haven't talked about a ton of hope yet. So there's, Jesus says, don't miss it in verse 4 again of chapter 5. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We haven't talked about any of the comfort, but I want to end with this. How does God bring comfort to the believer? Let me, let me start here. The comfort, uh, it's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a promise for you. When you grieve in your sin, that God himself comes near. Not, I'm not talking about false, flabby repentance. I'm talking about true, genuine hating of your own sin. Hating of the sin around you. To be grieved. God comes near himself. We see Jesus say the same thing even to his disciples in the upper room. John 16, 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, he's talking about specifically when he dies, when he goes to the cross and dies. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus' promise is to his disciples that when they mourn briefly at his departure, they'll rejoice at his resurrection. And, you know, this is the same thing is true for me and you. Now, we, we stand post-resurrection. We've seen all this. But you know what happens? When you and I see our spiritual bankruptcy and we mourn it, God himself comes near. There can be no greater promise that Jesus says that even that same word that's used, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's that word that's actually used to describe the Holy Spirit later. It's paraclete, or comforter, the one who comes near in that way, or comes alongside. So I want us to see finally that it's the comfort applied by the Holy Spirit through forgiveness. When Jesus comes on the scene, you know, he quotes a passage in the Old Testament. Actually, the one we heard read this morning, Isaiah 61. And he quotes the passage that talks of the Lord coming near and binding up the brokenhearted. It says this, Isaiah 61, and then we'll end here. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's what Jesus' mission was. All those who mourn. You know, we prayed even this morning for the Uyghur people. You know, people that have been afflicted like the Uyghur people are actually far more sensitive to the gospel because they know how, how disgusting of a world we live in. They know, even at some level, how disgusting and how broken of a world we live in, and they see it even within themselves, I think, easier. But this is the comfort that Jesus brings. He himself will come near to us to comfort all who mourn, verse 2, or verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. You know, the next time you, see, you, you find yourself stuck in a pattern of sin, I need you to consider yourself sitting in a pile of ashes. And the promise that's laid before us is simply this. As you sit in that pile of ashes, weeping and mourning, when we do it, when we're broken in spirit and when we're mourning the fact that we're broken in spirit, Jesus himself comes near and places, notice what it says in verse four, 3, to give a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. He takes the weeping and he gives us in its place a headdress, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the faint spirit. Think about the prodigal son who comes home. He comes home weeping and mourning, Father, I'm sorry, I'll live in the outskirts of your place. And he says, no, son, here's the ring. Here's, here's, the, here's, my, here's my best cloak. I'm going to throw it upon you. Because that's what Jesus does to the repentant. He comes near to them. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Friends, forgiveness will be the balm that heals the wounded soul. Forgiveness will be the oil of gladness that flows down the faces of the morning. Where tears of sorrow for sin once stood will be an oil of forgiveness purchased by the blood of Christ. Notice where this all leads to, and I want to end here and we'll take communion together. Even the Corinthians... You know, they didn't end there. Paul rebuked them. He said, yo, you guys, you guys need to get rid of the sin amongst you. You know, they finally did it. And when they did it, this is what he says to them. For see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. Notice where it goes. It's not repentance unto death. It's repentance unto life. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. True mourning over sin leads to obedience. Mourning over sin that takes us to life, that pulls the plug out of the, the, the spiraling of gross sin and self. And you know, like we, like we read this morning, Psalm 56, 8. You, that's referring to the Lord, have kept count of all my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
You know, God keeps track for his people. He keeps track of every sin, every, not only every sin, but also every grief for sin that you've ever experienced. Every heartache for sin. He's kept track of it, and he remembers it. And you ask what book he's referring to? It will be the book that will be opened at the end of time. It will be the book that, that sits in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Don't miss verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian, as you grieve your sin, and as you grieve the sin of those around you, there's hope. We don't see it today, not fully. We see it in part, but we don't see it fully. But the promise is that God will someday come and wipe away every sin from your eye, every tear from your eye. But what he won't wipe away is a person refusing to mourn for their sin. See, this is the fundamental difference from the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian has the same amount of tears. They have the same amount of tears for a completely different reason. For everybody else's fault. It's not their own fault. They, they, they weep, they mourn for, because it's everybody else's fault. But the, but the promise of revelation is he'll wipe away every tear of us, of those who grieve and mourn their own spiritual bankruptcy. Mourners will be blessed because they will be comforted by God himself. Mourners are happily approved because they receive the balm of forgiveness from God himself. Now, I want us to turn and I want us to take communion together.